Revelation 14. Another marvelous passage of bizarre storytelling, which I love. This is God's Word, again, and I I like to note this. It was written a long time ago. That's important to realize, probably 95, 96 A.D., Uh, but when God wrote it, He had those people in mind, and because God is very clever, He had you in mind. Uh, So this is written for you today. Then I looked, behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists, playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It is these, sorry, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. In their mouth was no lie found, for they're blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud like a son of man. One, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, 
and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar of the angel as authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle. Gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of, of, of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadium. Let's pray. Lord God, you have spoken in the reading of your word. We delight in that. We thank you that you give your spirit to give illumination. We ask now that you would speak in the preaching of your word. And again, we ask that your spirit would give illumination, give understanding, strengthen our weak faith. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Need you to imagine a scenario. I know it's not happened in your house in any way, but need you to imagine nonetheless, it's uh, a busy family day, maybe it's a work day, maybe it's not, doesn't matter, maybe a husband goes off to work, maybe he's running errands, honestly where he is is not important to the story. What is important is that while he's gone, the wife kind of gets a bug and decides she's going to get her hair cut. And not like the little trim, you know, where it's just the little bit of hair cut off that, you know, only she can discern that she actually got cut. We're talking, this is the cut, right? The nine inches of hair disappears in just a matter of moments. It's the cut, right? (laughs) And the scenario that you need to imagine is after she's gotten the cut, you know, all the hair's gone and everything. It's, I mean, she's still lovely. She's still beautiful, but it's very different. Her days changed, obviously. She wasn't expecting to spend so much time doing that. So she's home kind of frantically, you know, running around the house. Uh, She was hoping to kind of maybe dress up a little bit nicer to make her hair look pretty when her husband gets home. But she didn't get a chance to do all that she was expecting to do. But instead, he walks in and it's time to eat. And you know how the story goes, right? He sits down and he goes, something's different. Did you get your eyebrows done? <laughs> right, this is the point where the narrator's like, she didn't get her eyebrows done. <laughs> Are those new earrings? He gave them to her 10 years ago. Are you, are you, you're using different lipstick. That's what it is. She wasn't wearing lipstick. It's the lipstick. I know it's the lipstick. And he begins to obsess on it, right? That's what it is. It's your complexion. It looks different. Maybe it's maybe a more purple shade, right? And you're like, oh, goodness. Just stop talking. He doesn't get it. And you know how the story ends. He never kind of fully realizes it until the tears come. And she leaves. And he's like, what? What happened? Why is she so upset? What happens, obviously, we can kind of see from this side of the, uh, the story, because this never happened to any of you, I know. Uh, we can kind of see what happened is he was obsessing on the details and kind of missed the big picture. Like, brother, her hair's gone. That's kind of the big picture. You needed to notice that. Instead, you were freaking out about earrings and eyebrows and lipstick and all the other various things. Oh, look, the dinner's really delicious. And missing the big thing right in front of you. 
Unfortunately, a lot of times I think when Christians read the book of Revelation, that's what we do. We hear these little bits of information that we obsess over and forget the big picture. I mean, we obsess over them. How many thousands of pages have been written or sermons given or talks had or lectures hosted or movies made, including Nicolas Cage, uh, talking about the mark of the beast, talking about the 1260 days, talking about all of these little kind of odds and ends little details to obsess over what's going on in this book. I mean, how many things have been published telling you the exact day that Jesus is coming back? Or the seven things Israel needs to do to make Jesus return? Or the five steps we can follow to bring about the second coming? And in doing so, I think Christians are are doing what the, the kind of loving but buffoonish husband's doing of getting caught up in all the wrong details and missing the big picture that is set right before the saints to feast on. Chapter 14 is one of those chapters. It's got a lot of the weird details in, and it's got a lot of the weird details that, like I said, there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of pages written on that are, by and large, not as helpful as they could be. And the natural temptation when we read this is to want to get hot. I mean, oh my goodness, we want to go down that hole of figuring out the numerology of the mark of the beast and all. Not entirely a waste of time, but please focus on the big picture. You see, what's happening in the big picture of chapter 14 is really important because there's three movements that kind of take place. It's three kind of specific little stories that are strung together to kind of capture uh, an, an intentional focus of what's going on. If you remember chapter 13, we had the two beasts. The devil himself is waging war against the church. He's using uh, the sea beast, which is this kind of angry, ugly, aggressive, militant relationship. And the earth beast, which is this very lovely, lying, conniving, mischievous approach. And as you were kind of you thinking through big picture, you would go, man, I'm concerned for the church. I mean, the devil is one, very powerful. He was made to be in God's presence. Uh, all of the angel descriptions that we have are really impressive. I mean, one angel kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. That's pretty solid. I mean, that's pretty excellent even by you know, today's military standards. Plus, not only is he very smart and very powerful, he's had a long time to study people. And I'm going to tell you right now, I know absolutely nothing about Russian literature, but if you gave me six to 10,000 years to sort it out, I would be brilliant at it by the time I was done. He knows people, and so you would have to wonder, oh no, what's going to happen to the church? The devil and all of his minions, all of his uh, little things and tactics and lies and aggressions are out to get the church. What's going to happen? Now, chapter 14 answers it. It answers it, and it answers it kind of in three specific spheres. It answers it inside, it answers it outside, and then it answers it in eternity. Inside, outside, and then in eternity. Let's look first at how this is answered on the inside. 
Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. So, okay, devils and hell, his minions are out to get the church. Okay, that's really terrifying. Oh, no, it's not terrifying anymore. Jesus is here. Jesus arrives, he's standing on Mount Zion, he's in his holy place, and with him comes his 144,000. That number, again, you remember from the very beginning of the book, is the way that John describes the church. It is 12 times 12, your Old Testament, your New Testament, plus the superlative version of the number of completion, 10, 10, 10. So it is numerically intended to categorize. This is all of God's people. It's the portrait of the saints. So Jesus shows up. He has his saints uh, arrayed with him. And these saints specifically have his name and their father's name written on their heads. And if you've kind of been paying attention through the book, you've seen that what John is trying to do with the the name written on the head, honestly, with the mark of the beast, it's identical. He's trying to instruct the reader that there are only two categories of people. There are those that belong to the Lord God and worship him, and there are those that belong to the devil and worship him. There's only two categories. There's no category for, well, I mean, I don't worship Jesus, but I'm better than my neighbor. There's no category for that. There's no category for, well, I don't really, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it hard enough. There's no category. Well, there is. It's called the the beast. I mean, that's the unbeliever. There's no category for, well, I'm just a good person. I'm nice. I mean, I'm nicer. I'm the nicest person I know. There's no category for the person who has the most toys when they die. There's there's only two categories. And those categories are marked, but they're marked with things that we can't see today, but marked with things that God can see. And here is using kind of a visible representation to help us understand that. A mark on the forehead of the people of God, uh, bearing the name of the Father and the Son, and uh, for the unbeliever, a mark that marks them as being unregenerate. If you wanted to kind of think about what the best comparison to that would be today, it would be like baptism, wherein water is placed upon a person and the name of the triune God is placed upon them. It's that same kind of idea that God is claiming his people and he's marking them as belonging to him. This, however, is highlighting something different, though, than simply just baptism. What this one is even pushing forward to is an understanding that God's relationship with his people is so great that it it works on the inside. It changes them from the inside out so that they're different kinds of people. Verse 2 is going to explain this even further, which is so marvelous. Uh, John hears a voice from heaven. And it's a voice that is shocking. It's a voice that's singing, and it's singing that's so loud, the best comparison he have, has is a gigantic waterfall. And again, we've talked about this with waterfalls. The, the significance there is it's a noise that's so overwhelming and so powerful, you feel it before you see it. And if you've ever been backpacking, and you know when you're getting close to the waterfall, even before you turn the corner and can see it, because you hear the roar and you feel the vibration in the rocks and in the ground as you go, it's, a, it's almost an oppressive, overwhelming feel. Here, the singing of the saints is this overwhelming, 
earth-shaking song. And you might think, well, you know, all we got to do to replicate that is just turn the volume up. We'll get microphones for everybody, put a thousand speakers in here, we can replicate. Well, not entirely. Uh, it spoke both the volume, the, the, you know, the magnificent power, but then also it's described as it's like the sound of you know, harpists everywhere playing on harps. It's incredibly melodic. It's beautiful and it's lovely. And these saints are singing and it explains to us, oh, by the way, this song that we've been hearing all throughout the book of Revelation, the new song, the song that's praising the Lord Jesus, by the way, it's their song. Here it even goes so far as to explain the church is the one who writes it and the church is the only one equipped to sing it. And of course, John, even in this, is not talking about a literal song. He's not talking about there's one specific praise song that we get to learn that the angels can't sing. Maybe their tongues aren't able to pronounce some of the letters that we get. No. What he's getting at here is that this is the song of redemption. That the redeemed are able to produce from their heart this praise that pours forth because we've been given a new nature. And not only have we been given a new nature, we've been adopted. You realize we're able to sing a song the angels can't sing because we can sing it as sons and daughters of the Most High. I mean, this is an amazing thing to think about. The most powerful the most beautiful, the most elegant, the most overwhelmingly wonderful angel cannot sing the song we are privileged to sing. Because they can't call them Father. They cannot call God Abba, Father. They're not redeemed by Christ. They're not purchased the way that we have been purchased. And here, this is what the church pours forth. A heart of praise reflected in a mouth that's busy singing to God. Four then highlights even further that these people actually have uh, a different sort of nature even reflected in their relationship with corruption. They've not defiled themselves. This is a super complicated grammatical construction. They've not defiled themselves. Uh, They're pure in their hearts. They're pure in their mouths. They're pure in their hands. He uses human sexuality to illustrate that. But the, the picture he's getting at is so much bigger. These are the redeemed. Verse 4 and 3 quarters, they're the redeemed from mankind. They are the ones that God has gathered together. They have no lie in their mouth. They're blameless. In fact, even going so far as to call them the first fruits. A complicated kind of term, but for the Jews, they would have understood the first fruits, just like our tithes, the first fruits belong to God. Everything else after that was common. And was used for common purpose. If you wanted to eat it, you could eat it. If you wanted to give it away, you could give it away. If you wanted to store it, you could store it. It didn't matter. That was yours to use. But the first fruits were God's. So here, even going so far as to say of the church, look, of all of the humans that have ever existed on God's green earth, the church are the first fruits that belong to him. Everybody else is for a common purpose. And we're going to find out what that common purpose is in just a moment. It's a really bad one. 
But for those that are the first fruits, those that are the church, those that are set apart, that belong to the Lord Jesus, they are set aside for His use specifically, for His protection and for His love. You see, what's going on here is all of these kind of marks of purity. You have a mark on their head, a mark in their mouth, a mark with their hands, uh, a mark of being the first roots. All of it is hinting at that their insides are changed. These are a pure people who have been redeemed by the Lamb and transformed. So they're different. So they've been made new. This is, I would suggest, a corrective to so much of what the American church tries to push forward and certainly what has been mocked in so much media as to say Christians are people who just do good things and don't do bad. To try to reduce Christianity to simply a list of do's and don'ts is not true Christianity. Likewise, and I would say particularly for the children in the church, to think that you are a Christian simply because you enter into this building and because that's what mommy and daddy are is a misunderstanding of the gospel, a misunderstanding of Christianity. You see, the real heart of what's taking place for, and I would not just say the, the church institution, but for like true Christians, their mark is that they are with Jesus. Their closeness with the Lamb, He's changing them because He's there with them. He's part of them. He's redeemed them. He's renewing them. They're different. Completely and totally different. Now, that doesn't mean uh, yet this side of, uh, of death, they're not perfect. By this point, they are. This portrait, at least. And I'll be honest, in terms of thinking about Christianity from this perspective, I I think it does put a slightly different slant on godly living. You know, last week I said one of the ways that's very helpful to think about temptation is every time you give in to temptation, you're inviting the devil into your life. You're inviting the devil to have power in your life. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, you will sin less if you think that way. Because the more that you think about inviting the devil into your home, inviting the devil into your, uh, you know, into your wallet, into your own uses of your emotions, and your, boy, you will stop that quickly. Likewise, I think it will change how we think about purity and think about obedience if we think about what we are doing is living the ethics of heaven. You know, I, I, I can't think I've ever remember talking to a Christian who's like, I don't want to be in heaven because I still like crying. I still like hurting. I still like sin. I I still like all the terrible aspects of the world. I I still enjoy that part. I'm not used to hearing that. I'm used to hearing Christians say, you know, I have things I want to do here before I go, but I look forward to heaven. I look forward to being done with sin. I look forward to you know, not having those tears to cry the same way. And part of what Jesus, I think, is challenging us to do in verses 1 through 5 is, why wait? Why wait to get to heaven to start acting like it? 
Why wait till you get to heaven to try to really combat sin? Why wait till you get to heaven to be obedient? Why wait? Tom and I pray on Fridays, as you know, and uh, one of the prayers that we do, we pray for the officers of the church, and we uh, pray for the next two rounds of officer nominations whenever those take place, uh, and we pray for the little boys in the church specifically. And our prayer is the same every Friday, that they wouldn't wait, that they wouldn't wait until they're 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 to try to be a godly man. Start at four. Start at five, start at six, start at seven. Spend a lifetime laboring to be a godly man. Don't wait until we're like 55 and you know, kids are going into college, maybe coming out of college. Like, eh, maybe it's time to start actually thinking about being a good man. It's a bit late, friend. I mean, it's not too late for Jesus, but you should have started a long time ago. But again, interesting to think how many times Christians we do this with, even how we approach sin. Well, I'll just wait until heaven to stop sinning. Why? Why wait? Jesus then begins to explain the difference between the first fruits and the common fruits. If the church has been transformed inside and made pure, they've been made holy, they're set apart for God's use, there's a distinction between the church and the ordinary. The common, the profane. Verses 6 through 13 walk us through the consequence of that division. The series of angels, four messages specifically through the angels here. First, the angel flies directly overhead. I imagine it like a uh, fighter jet going over or something. And the angel comes with an eternal gospel to proclaim. And you're thinking, all right, I like this. I like it when the gospel is proclaimed. This makes me happy. Pause on that emotion. With an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. I like this. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. I don't like that. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Oh no, actually, what's happening here now with this angel who's come to proclaim this eternal gospel to all the various people who live on all of the various parts of the world, this is delivered to the unbeliever, to the unregenerate, to those who are set aside for that common purpose. And this is a message of condemnation. This is a message of judgment. This is a message of the gospel has been proclaimed and yet you rejected it. You didn't hear it. You turned your back on the Lamb. You had opportunity to believe, and yet in doing so, all you have done is increase your judgment. I think about this every time I preach, just about. My sermons have two purposes. It is to help the holy to heaven and to help the unholy to hell. That's what every sermon is. It's to come alongside the saints and to to lift them up, to encourage them, to strengthen, to equip them for every good deed. And it is to increase the damnation of the unregenerate. Because they know more. They've heard the gospel. 
It's the twofold aspect of baptism, of God's name being placed upon a person. If you're a child of God, you may not be converted for 50 years after that baptism. That's fine. He uses it whenever you get it, whenever uh, he saves you. But for those who are baptized, have the name of the triune God placed upon him and still continue to reject him. Those set aside here for this common purpose, it only increases their judgment. It's the twofold work of the church. I mean, it's often said that if, if you never make anybody angry in your preaching, you're probably not doing a very good job. This is in all the good preaching books. And not by that I mean, don't be like needlessly a fool. But if you're never challenging people to think about their sin, never making them uncomfortable, what are you offering? Okay, fair enough with the preacher side of it, but let's talk about the church as a whole. If we, uh, maybe as the American church, water down the gospel so much that everybody feels safe in the church. What a travesty. What a loss if everybody can come in and not worry about their eternal soul. What a loss. Verse 8, another angel comes and uh, deals with what I think is the, the, the primary backup plan the unregenerate would have. <laughs> Verses 6 and 7, the unregenerate have rejected the gospel. Verse 8, the angel is taking away that defeater. He's, he's saying, look, your backup plan was garbage. Your backup plan was to trust in Babylon. Babylon the Great, which every time in uh, this book refers to Rome specifically, but generically refers to the, the kind of the prince, the power, the, just all of the lure of the world. I think what's going on here is you see in the average, you're unregenerate. They're saying, look, I reject God. I reject his truth. But instead, I'm going to do the things that make me feel good. I'll, I'll do charity because it makes me feel good about myself. And I'll pursue my pleasures and how I eat or my human sexuality or all the various activities of my life. But I will do what makes me feel good because that is the ultimate gold standard. The world has to offer. That's why here Babylon the Great is described as making the nations drink the wine of the passion of her impurity. The backup plan for the world is, is reject God, but do whatever feels good. And again, I would go to you children, students, college students. It's one of the aspects of this culture that grieves the older folks in the church is to see how rapidly this culture has accelerated in praising you for embracing your passions. Fifty years ago, the culture would not have encouraged you for that. It would have scolded you for trying to be what you wanted to be and do whatever feels good. You had responsibilities to do. Things to follow here instead today, our current culture, we've really drunk from this well deeply. And we tell everybody, do what makes you feel good. Believe what makes you feel good. (coughs) Live in a way that makes you feel good. That is the beating heart of the American college campus. Do what makes you feel good. 
The problem here is the angel comes in and is like, hey, look, by the way, that thing you've been, that backup plan you've had, do whatever makes you feel good. Oh, by the way, it's been defeated entirely. All it does is lead to further judgment as well. And if you had any questions about that, third angel shows up here, verse 9, with a loud voice begins to explain. Look, here's the second category. Those that are not marked for Christ Jesus, those that are not set aside as the first fruit, everybody else, well, they're worshiping the beast in its image in some form or fashion. Whether that's believing in something as hard as you can, whether that's liberal Christianity, whether that's Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Baha'i, pick, Zoroastrianism, I don't care. Everyone else is believing in the devil and his evil lies and manipulations and in doing so is receiving his mark on their forehead or hand. I remember being a kid freaking out, wondering what this was, you know. Is it a computer chip? Is it a tattoo? Obviously, I'm old enough to know that, you know, tattoos were still kind of becoming a thing. Oh, no. It doesn't matter. That's not the point of what the mark of the beast is. The mark of the beast is not a thing we are to be concerned about accidentally getting that will damn us to hell forever. No, what it is, is it is the reflection of a person's heart. It's an external mark that clarifies the internal condition. I I don't think it's something that we'll ever actually see. I think it's an instructive tool in the text. To help categorize that there are two different types of people because this second category of person, those that worship the devil in his various uh, iterations and lies and falsehoods, guess what happens to them? These are the ones, verse 10, that will drink the cup of God's wrath in its entirety. And the consequence is that they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. They will have no rest day or night, and uh, they will be the worshipers of the beast. That's terrible. But you see what's being held here is the contrast. God's salvation first impacts the person on the inside, but it doesn't just stop with the inside. That's where uh, Christianity has been, uh, again, I think, tricked into believing a lie of the devil, that my Christianity is just about how what I believe, my heart, my relationship with God, and that's it, and that's only. No! No, it's about your relationship with the world as well, because you're pulled out and set aside, and all of God's wrath is then poured on the remaining, those set aside for a common purpose. The destruction of the wrath of God. And I love how verses 12 and 13 function as that instructive purpose to the saints. Oh yes, by the way, when you look at the world around you, you're going to see the evil prospering for a time. You're going to see all of those around you pursuing the pleasures of their flesh and seeming to have a good time for a season. You're going to see all of this stuff. But be reminded, judgment will come. Verse 12, here is a call, a reminder, an encouragement, a warning for the endurance of the saints. Stay the course. It may look like the wicked are winning. 
It may look like they can do whatever they want. It may look like they can pursue any pleasure they want. It may look that they're prospering in every way imaginable for a time. Stay the course. Don't mistake God's patience for something else. Keep the commandments of God. Keep faith in Christ Jesus. Stay strong. Endure. In fact, even verse 13, turning it one step further to say, heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Look, his salvation is so great that it transforms how you even perceive death. That great enemy, the one thing that everybody shares in common that terrifies everybody deep in their soul because you don't know what comes on the other side. Oh yeah, by the way, that now becomes your ally. You want blessing? As a child of God. Well, guess what? The one thing you can't run from, that's your access to blessing. You may be concerned about the pain along the way. Fair enough on that one. But you don't have to be afraid of death itself. Because those, says the Spirit, those that die are blessed indeed. In fact, even their labors follow them. All of the service that has been given to Christ follow them and reward is given. And Christ's math is way more generous than mine is. Any of even the tiniest little things done in his service, he rewards well over the top. Stay the course. Don't grow weary of doing good. Changes the insides. Changes our relationship with the outside. And then in verses 14 through 20, it's the end of time. This is the big day, the big event, the final kind of act of the created order as we know. And then I looked and behold, a white cloud And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. So here's Jesus with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And in one of the, it actually makes sense, but it's very bizarre when you read it at first. An angel comes out of the temple and says to Jesus, now it's time. It's time for the second coming. It's the end of days. Now it's time. And on first reading, it seems kind of weird that Jesus wouldn't know this until you go back and you remember and go, oh, yeah. Jesus himself even said, the Son of Man doesn't know what day it ends. The Son of Man is not actually given access to that. Jesus in his humanity doesn't know when the second coming is going to take place. Here we have an angel informing him of it. It's why you should never trust anybody that says they know more about the second coming than Jesus does. If Jesus himself doesn't know, don't trust someone who says they do. Here the angel comes out, says to Jesus, it's time, it's the end of the earth. And here, uh, then John explains it, but using a farming illustration. Jesus taking the great sickle, swings it through earth and harvests for himself his people. That's That's the giant swipe that's given. All of his saints are pulled out. They're reserved for himself and they are made safe. You're like, ooh, I like that part of the story, but it doesn't stop. 
Then another angel shows up. He too has a sharp sickle and he's now given access to harvest again. And John in full-blown John mode mixes metaphors in the most confusing of fashions where the angel then swings his sickle all the way through uh, the earth and harvests the grapes, which you don't use sickles to harvest. But okay, that's fine. We're going to mix metaphors and it'll be all right and it'll be fine. Here though, harvesting something on purpose, he's harvesting the grapes of wrath. He's harvesting those that are set aside for a common purpose. He's harvesting those that have the mark of the beast that have worshipped the devil. He's harvesting everyone that does not belong to the Lord Jesus. Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest, the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, you know, turn compressed. And the wine, the blood flows from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia, which I think is probably most likely a symbolic number 40 by 40 square. But let's just use it for illustrative purposes. They figured out that if this were a river this deep, it would have run from the north of Israel all the way through the south. That if this were actually in a square, as I suspect it was intended to be, that it would be blood this deep that you could not see the end of. It would be further than your horizon would carry you. The judgment that God pours out is terrible. But his people have already been removed and preserved. They're held safe. And I would very quickly, as I know I'm a touch late, just give a couple of very brief applications from this passage. This is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus, through his death on the cross, through being the lamb that was slain but would not stay dead, has accomplished the salvation of his people. That salvation is, by and large, three parts as we've seen. It's that internal salvation, it's in relationship to the world, and it is in relationship to the end times. All three of those are true. And I'm going to tell you, as our church continues to grow, you can see it throughout church history, you can see it as institutions get bigger, as more people are involved, as more money is at stake, there will always be a temptation for us to grow soft on that. To take the edge and blunt it just a little bit. To to actually feel that tension that most of us feel, right? It's hard. I mean, I'll be honest, it's hard to stand up front and look people in the eye and be like, look, the vast majority of people on this planet right now are headed to hell. They're going to glorify God by how they go to hell, but they're headed to hell and they're going to be the recipients of his judgment forever. The vast majority of people in that neighborhood, people in the KOA, people in those neighborhoods, people over there, that is the reality of the world. And that breaks my heart to say. There is, however, going to be a temptation as we continue to get bigger that cowardice creeps in and we stop saying it quite so sharply. That we begin to hide that truth. And I'll tell you, the easiest way to hide it, I will tell you, I know this one. The easiest way to hide this truth is to emphasize how to make your life better today. Because if I can give you good therapeutic counsel on how to make your life better today, I might not have to deal with tomorrow. Tomorrow. 
If you haven't felt this tension yet, you will. To focus on the now so much that we don't focus on the later at all and lose the heart of the gospel. Secondly, I would suggest that we need to be a church that intentionally labors to put this up front in our philosophy of ministry. That this is what our children hear. That this is what our adults hear. That this is the beating heart of this church. That Jesus saves sinners and transforms our lives. And again, we would all say, well, we agree with that. But there is a temptation again. And the temptation sounds a little bit like this of, well, yes, I already learned that. Well, yeah, I I heard that in grade school. I understood that when I was a kid. I already got that. Now it's time to move on to things that are different and other and better. And forget about the gospel. That's certainly not to say that we shouldn't have a robust and holy and wholesome faith. But may it be this church never moves away from that. Never goes a week without sharing it. That our people never go without talking about it or believing it. And then lastly, and this is where I'll end. It's really hard for us to live in a way that prepares us for heaven if we don't ever think about the mechanism to get us there and why it even matters. I mean, it's easy for us to to kind of long for heaven when we're in the middle of tough circumstances to say, I'm ready to be in heaven because I'm ready to be out of these circumstances. That is easy. I physically hurt. I'm ready to stop hurting. I'm therefore ready for heaven. It is much more difficult to think about that in relationship to sin and thinking about that relationship to how we sing and thinking about that in relationship to how we love. If we don't think about the full picture of the gospel and the winepress of the wrath of God that Jesus handled for me. Sometimes I wonder when we have those periods of our life where Christianity seems boring, if it's honestly because this has grown boring. We just don't really care that much that Jesus saved us and what he saved us from, and so it's easy to just kind of have everything become blah. It's actually why the book of Hebrews was written. It's the warning that the author of the book of Hebrews gives from the very beginning. The danger of growing dull and of growing hardened. And I would suggest that's going to be a great danger for us. It's a danger for them. We're not immune to it. May it be that we never walk those paths turning from our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. Thank you for Jesus who saves, for the spirit who transforms. We bless you and we ask that you would indeed be faithful to us. And by your spirit, make us be faithful to you because we won't on our own. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.